Well, hello and welcome back to Tangents on Cracked Spines. My lovely bookworms, give me a minute while I get this adjusted because I got some technical issues. There we go. I forgot something. Alright, let's try that again. Hopefully the audio is cleared up. Anyways, welcome to Tangents on Crack Spines, my bookworms. Sorry about the uh, scattered beginning, but I'm here. <laughs> I should edit all of that out, and you know me, I'm not going to. Anyways, as an introduction, I'm Frankie. I read with unedited commentary works from the public domain. Uh, if you go back further in the catalog, I have done Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, a collection of works from H.P. Lovecraft, There Are Mosquitoes in My House, <laughs> um, and we are now on to a nonsense anthology. Uh, this particular section, you don't have to go back uh, to know what we're doing because they're a collection of poems. Um, and last week's were so riveting that I actually forgot what I read. <laughs> Let's see. There were a lot of love poems and a lot of uh, Edward Lear. They were really fun, I remember that much, but they don't really pertain to what's happening today. And now that I have wasted your time for two minutes, I must state, please listener discretion is advised. Just because it's old enough to be in the public domain does not mean that it is advisable for all audiences. There tend to be um, depictions of death and other graphic things. So please, listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. And we begin. The Walrus and the Carpenter The sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might. He did his very best to make the billow smooth and bright. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky. No birds were flying overhead. There were no birds to fly. The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were only cleared away, they said, it would be grand. If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose, the walrus said, that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. Oh, oysters come and walk with us, the walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk along the briny beach. We cannot do with more than four to give a hand to each. The eldest oyster looked at him, but not a word he said. The eldest oyster winked his eye, and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. But four young oysters hurried up, all eager for the treat. 
Their coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were clean and neat. And this was odd because, you know, they hadn't any feet. Four other oysters followed them, and yet another four. And thick and fast they came at last, and more and more and more, all hoping through the frothy, hopping through the frothy waves, and scrambling to the shore. The walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile or so, and then they rested on a rock conveniently low, and all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and chips and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. But wait a bit, the oysters cried, before we have our chat, for some of us are out of breath, and all of us are fat. No hurry, said the carpenter. They thanked him much for that. A loaf of bread, the walrus said, is what we chiefly need. Pepper and vinegar, besides, are very good indeed. Now, if you're ready, oysters, dear, we can begin to feed. My apologies. My cats are fighting. I don't know if you can hear it. Girls! I keep a teaser toy. When they're in them, they don't fight as often as they used to, but... <sighs> Anyways, let's go back. But not on us, the oysters cried, turning a little blue. After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do. The night is fine, the walrus said. Do you admire the view? It was so kind of you to come, and you are very nice, the carpenter said, nothing but cut us another slice. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I've had to ask you twice. It seems a shame, the walrus said, to play them such a trick, after we've brought them out so far and made them trot so quick. The carpenter said nothing, but the butter spread too thick. I weep for you, the walrus said. I deeply sympathize. With sobs and tears, he sorted out those of the largest size, holding his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Oh, oysters, said the carpenter, you've had a pleasant run. Shall we be trotting home again? But answer came there none. And this was scarcely odd, because they'd eaten every one. Lewis Carroll. I think he had some issues... That's a terrible poem, and yet it's a well-known one. <sighs> the Hunting of the Snark All of us have a little snark. We don't have to hunt that far. We have sailed many months. We have sailed many weeks. Four weeks to the month, you may mark. But never as yet, tis your captain who speaks, have we caught the least glimpse of a snark. We have sailed many weeks, we have sailed many days, seven days to the week, I allow, but a snark on the which we might lovingly gaze, we have never beheld until now. Come listen, my men, while I tell you again the five unmistakable marks, by which you may know, wheresoever you go, the warranted genuine snarks. Let us take them in order, the first is the taste, which is meager and hollow but crisp, like a coat that is rather too tight in the waist with a flavor of will-o'-the-wisp. 
It's habit of getting up late, you'll agree, that it carries too far when I say that it frequently breakfasts at five o'clock tea and dines on the following day. I'm nocturnal, I do that. <laughs> the third is its slowness in taking a jest. Should you happen to venture on one, it will sigh like a thing that is greatly distressed. It always looks grave at a pun. The fourth is its fondness for bathing machines, which it constantly carries about, and believes that they add to the beauty of scenes a sentiment open to doubt. The fifth is ambition. It next will be right to describe each particular batch, distinguishing those that have feathers and bite from those that have whiskers and scratch. For although common snarks do not manner, do no manner of harm, yet I feel it my duty to say, some are boojums, the bellman broke off in alarm, for the baker had fainted away. They roused him with muffins, they roused him with ice, they roused him with mustard and cress, they roused him with jam and judicious advice, they set him conundrums to guess. When at length he sat up and was able to speak, his sad story he offered to tell, and the bellman cried silence, not even a shriek, and excitedly tingled his bell. My father and mother were honest though poor. Skip all that, cried the bellman in haste. If it once became comes dark, there's no chance of a snark. We have hardly a minute to waste. I skip forty years, said the baker in tears, that proceed without further remark to the day when you took me aboard of your ship to help you in hunting the snark. You may seek it with thimbles and seek it with care. You may hunt it with forks and hope. You may threaten its life with a railway share. You may charm it with smiles and soap. I said it in Hebrew. I said it in Dutch. I said it in German and Greek. But I wholly forgot, and it vexes me much, that English is what you speak. The thing can be done, said the butcher. I think the thing must be done, I am sure. The thing shall be done. Bring me paper and ink. The best there is time to procure. Helps if I say the right word for it to rhyme. So engrossed was the butcher, he heeded them not as he wrote with a pen in each hand and explained all the while in popular style, which a beaver could well understand. Taking three as the subject to reason about a convenient number to state, we add seven and ten and then multiply out by one thousand diminished by eight. The result we proceed to divide, as you see, by nine hundred and ninety-two. Nine hundred and ninety and two. Then subtract seventeen and the answer must be exactly and perfectly true. As to temper, the jub-jub's a desperate bird, since it lives in perpetual passion. It tastes in costume is entirely absurd. It is ages ahead of the fashion. Its flavor when cooked is more exquisite than, far than mutton or oysters or eggs. Some think it keeps best in an ivory jar and some in mahogany kegs. You boil it in sawdust, you salt it in glue, you condense it with locusts and tape. Still keeping one principal object in view to preserve its symmetrical shape. The butcher would gladly have talked till next day, but he felt that the lesson must end, and he wept with the delight in attempting to say he considered the beaver his friend. Lewis Carroll again. <sighs> Sylvian Bruno. 
We don't talk about Bruno. He thought he saw a banker's clerk descending from the bus. He looked again and found it was a hippopotamus. If this should stay to dine, he said, there won't be much for us. He thought he saw an albatross that fluttered round the lamp. He looked again and found it was a penny postage stamp. We still have those. They're not much use, though. You'd best be getting home, he said. The nights are very damp. He thought he saw a coach and four that stood beside his bed. He looked again and found it was a bear without a head. Poor thing, he said. Poor silly thing. It's waiting to be fed. He thought he saw a kangaroo that worked a coffee mill. He looked again and found it was a vegetable pill. Where were I to swallow this, he said, I should be very ill. He thought he saw a rattlesnake that questioned him in Greek. He looked again and found it was the middle of next week. The one thing I regret, he said, is that it cannot speak. I think we're just in a Lewis Carroll section. But hey, it means it should mostly rhyme. Gentle Alice Brown It was a robber's daughter, and her name was Alice Brown. Her father was the terror of a small Italian town. Her mother was a foolish, weak, but amiable old thing. But it isn't of her parents that I'm going for to sing. As Alice was a-sitting at her windowsill one day, a beautiful young gentleman, he chanced to pass that way. She cast her eyes upon him and looked so good and true that she thought I could be happy with a gentleman like you. And every morning past her house, that cream of gentlemen, she knew she might expect him at a quarter unto ten. A sorter in the custom house, it was his daily road. The custom house was fifteen minutes' walk from her abode. But Alice was a pious girl who knew it wasn't wise to look at strange young sorters with expressive purple eyes. So she sought the village priest to whom her family confessed, the priest by whom their little sins were carefully assessed. Oh, holy father, Alice said, "'Twas grieve you, would it not, to discover that I was a most disreputable lot. Of all unhappy sinners, I'm the most unhappy one. The padre said, whatever have you been and gone and done. I have helped mama to steal a little kitty from its dad. I've assisted dear papa in cutting up a little lad. I've planned a little burglary and forged a little check and slain a little baby for the coral on its neck. What's with the child killing? The worthy pastor heaved a sigh and dropped a silent tear and said, You mustn't judge yourself too heavily, my dear. It's wrong to murder babies. Little corals forth to fleece, but since like these one expiates at half a crown apiece. Girls will be girls. You're very young and flighty in your mind. Old heads upon young shoulders we must not expect to find. We mustn't be too hard upon these little girlish tricks. Let's see five crimes at half a crown, exactly twelve and six. Oh, father, little Alice cried, your kindness makes me weep. You do these little things for me so singularly cheap. Your thoughtful liberality I never can forget. But oh, there is another crime I haven't mentioned yet. A pleasant-looking gentleman with pretty purple eyes, 
I've noticed at my window as I've sat a-catching flies. He passes by it every day as certain as can be. I blush to say I've winked at him and he has winked at me. For shame, said Father Paul, my erring daughter. On my word, this is the most distressing news that I have ever heard. Why, naughty girl, your excellent papa has pledged your hand to a promising young robber, the lieutenant of his band. This dreadful piece of news will pain your worthy parents so. They are the most remunerative customers I know. For many, many years they've kept starvation from my doors. I never knew so criminal a family as yours. The common country folk in this insipid neighborhood have nothing to confess. They're so ridiculously good. And if you marry anyone respectable at all, why you'll reform and what will then become of Father Paul? That's, that's terrible. Oh yeah, killing babies is bad, but <gasps> you can't want a reputable man. Because then I'll starve, because your family's the only one who I can say your sins have been forgiven by through money. We're not done. The worthy priest, he up and drew his cowl upon his head and started off in haste to tell the news to Robert Brown, to tell him how his daughter, who now was for marriage fit, had winked upon a sorter who reciprocated it. Good Robert Brown, he muffled up his anger pretty well. He said, I have a notion, and that notion I will tell. I will nab this gay young sorter, terrify him into fits, and get my gentle wife to chop him into little bits. I've studied human nature, and I know a thing or two. Though a girl may fondly love a living gent, as many do, a feeling of disgust upon her senses there will fall. When she looks upon his body, chop particularly small. He traced the gallant sorter to a still suburban square. He watched his opportunity and seized him unaware. He took a life preserver and he hit him on the head. Now that's just ironic. And Mrs. Brown dissected him before she went to bed. And pretty little Alice grew more settled in her mind. She never more was guilty of a weakness of the kind. Until at length good Robert Brown bestowed her pretty hand on the promising young robber, the lieutenant of his band, W.S. Gilbert. And I really, I don't, I have so many things to say about that. One, just killing babies is bad. But you can't, no, no, no going with, uh, going straight like that's that's bad because but then also like the fact that the church says all sins are forgiven or well a particular church says all things are forgiven if you can just give us money but then again they won't forgive her they facilitate another death of a good and worthy gentleman I'm not sure that's nonsense. I think that's just terrible. But I mean, the first story I wrote, read today was, you know, the walrus and the carpenter who, uh, you know, tricked a bunch of oysters into being their dinner. So, 
think this is just going to be a terrible section. Which, fitting for a tangents on cracks spines. But it also gives me something to go, oh my! The story of Prince Agib. Hmm. This seems like it might be slightly racist. Let's see. Strike the concertina's melancholy string. Blow the spirit stirring harp like anything. Let the piano's martial blast rouse the echoes of the past. For of a gib, prince of Tartary, I sing. Of a gib who amid Tartaric scenes wrote a lot of ballet music in his teens. His gentle spirit rolls in the melody of souls, which is pretty, but I don't know what it means. Of a gib who could readily at sight strum a march upon the loud Theodolite. Theodolite? He would diligently play on the Zoa trope all day and blow the gay pan technicon all night. One winter, I am shaky in my dates, came two starving minstrels to his gates. Oh, Allah be obeyed, how infernally they played. I remember that they called themselves the Oaites. Oh, oh. It's all vowels. Oh, that day of sorrow, misery, and rage, I shall carry to the catacombs of age, photographically lined on the tablet of my mind, when a yesterday has faded from its page. A lost Prince Agib went and asked them in, gave them beer and eggs and sweets and scents and tin. And tin? And when, as snobs would say, they put it all away, he requested them to tune up and begin. Though its icy horror chill you to the core, I will tell you what I never told before. The consequence is true of what that awful interview, for I listened at the keyhole in the door. They played him a sonata, let me see, medulla oblongata, key of G. Then they began to sing that extremely lovely thing, Sherzando, Manantrapo PPP. I mean, that's more like piano. He gave them money more than they could count, sent from a most ingenious little fount, more beer in little kegs, many dozen hard-boiled eggs, and goodies to a fabulous amount. Now follows the dim horror of my tale, and I feel I'm growing gradually pale, for even at this day, though its sting has passed away, when I venture to remember it, I quail. The elder of the brothers gave a squeal, all overish it made me for to feel. Oh, prince, he says, says he, if a prince indeed you be, I've a mystery I'm going to reveal. Oh, listen, if you'd shun a horrid, shun a horrid death to what the gent who's speaking to you saith, no oites in truth we are, as you fancy that we be, for to remble I am Alec, this is Beth. I... Assuming that's a reference to something that I don't understand. Said Agib, Oh, accursed of your kind! I have heard that you are men of evil mind. Beth gave a dreadful shriek, but before he'd time to speak, I was mercilessly colored from behind. In number ten or twelve, or even more, they fastened me, full length upon the floor. On my face extended flat, I was walloped with a cat, for listening at the keyhole of the door. 
like cat of nine tails or like actual cat oh the horror of that agonizing thrill i can feel the place in frosty weather still for a week from ten to four i was fastened to the floor while a mercenary whopped me with the will they branded me and broke me on a wheel and they left me in a hospital to heal and upon my solemn word i have never never heard what those tartars had determined to reveal but that day of sorrow misery and rage i shall carry to the catacombs of age photographically lined on the tablet of my mind when a yesterday has faded from its page ws gilbert i can't say anything like i haven't write some messed up stuff but all right Fernando and Elvira were the gentle pieman. Love you, said I. Then I sighed, and then I gazed upon her sweetly, for I think I do this sort of thing particularly neatly. Tell me whither I may his... Tell me, dear one, that I may know, is it up the highest Andes down a horrible volcano? But she said... It isn't polar bears or hot volcanic grottoes. Only find out who it is that writes those lovely cracker mottoes. Seven weary years I wandered, Patagonia, China, Norway, till at last I sank exhausted at a pastry cook's doorway. And he chirped and sang and skipped about and laughed with laughter hearty. He was wonderfully active for so very stout a party. And I said, O oh, gentlemen, pieman, why so very, very merry? Is it purity of conscience or your one and seven sherry? Then I polished all the silver and the supper table lacquers. Then I write the party mottoes, which you find inside the crackers. Found at last, I madly shouted. Gentle pieman, you astound me. Then I waved the turtle soup and that enthusiastically around me Aww. and I shouted and I danced until he'd quite a crowd around him and I rushed away exclaiming I have found him I have found him W.S. Gilbert General John the bravest names for fire and flames and all that mortals durst were General John and Private James of the 6071st General John was a soldier tried, a chief of warlike dons. A haughty stride and a withering pride were Major General John. A sneer would play on his martial fizz, superior birth to show, was a favorite word of his, and he often said, Ho ho! Full private James described might be as a man of mournful mind. No characteristic trait had he of any distinctive kind. From the ranks one day, cried Private James, Oh, Major General John, I've doubts on it for respective names my mournful mind upon. A glimmering thought occurs to me, it sorts I can't unearth, but I've a kind of notion we were cruelly changed at birth. I've a strange idea, each other's names, that we have each got on. Such things have been, said Private James. They have, sneered General John. My General John, I swear upon my oath, I think it's so. Proudly sneered his General John, and he also said, Ho ho! 
My General John, my General John, my General John, quoth he. This aristocratical sneer upon your face I blush to see. No truly great or generous, cove deserving of them names, would sneer at a fixed idea that's drove in the mind of Private James. Said General John, upon your claims no need your breath to waste. If this a joke full Private James, it's a joke of doubtful taste. But being a man of doubtless worth, if you feel certain quite that we were probably changed to birth, I'll venture to say you're right. So General John and Private James fell in parade upon, and Private James, by change of names, was Major General John. W.S. Gilbert. That one was less weird. Little Billy. Billy spelled B-I-L-L-E-E, in case anybody out there wants a fun new way to spell it. There were three sailors of Bristol City who took a boat and went to sea, but first with beef and captain's biscuits and pickled pork they loaded she. There was gorging Jack and guzzling Jimmy, and the youngest, he was little Billy. Now when they'd gotten got as far as the equator, they'd nothing left but one split pea. Says gorging Jack to guzzling Jimmy, I'm extremely hungry. To gorging Jack says guzzling Jimmy, we've nothing left as we must... We've nothing left, us must eat we. Says Gorging Jack to Guzzling Jimmy, With one another we shouldn't agree. There's little Bill, he's young and tender, We're old and tough, so let's eat he. Oh, Billy, we're going to kill and eat you, So undo the button of your chamois. When Bill received this information, He used his pocket handkerchief. Handkerchief. First, let me say my catechism, which my poor mother taught to me. Make haste, make haste, says guzzling Jimmy, while Jack pulled out his snickersnee. Then Bill went up to the main top gallant mast, and down he fell on his bended knee. He scarce had come to the twelfth commandment, when up he jumps. There's land, I see! Jerusalem and Madagascar and New Earth and South America... There's the British flag a-riding at anchor with Admiral Napier, KCB. So when they got aboard of the Admirals, he hanged Fat Jack and flogged Jimmy. But as for little Bill, he made him the captain of a 73. W.M. Thackeray. Well, that almost ended in uh, cannibalism, but it didn't. The Wreck of the Julie Plant On one dark night on Lac Saint-Pierre, the wind she blew, blow, blow, and the crew of the woods, gal Julie Plant, got scart and run below. For the wind she blow, like hurricane, bimby, she blow some more, and the scalp us up on Lac St. Pierre won a pent from the shore. The whole poem's gonna be like this, so I apologize. The captain walk on the front deck and walked him deck to. He called the crew from up the hole. He called the cook also. The cook, she's name was Rosie. She came from Montreal. Was chambermaid on lumber 
barge on the Grand Lushan Canal. The wind she blow from Nori West, the south wind she blow to, when Rosie cry, Mon cher Captain, Mon cher, what I shall do? Then the Captain trow the big anchor, but still the scow she drift, the crew she he can't pass on the shore because he lost his teeth. The night was dark like one black hat, the wave run high and fast. When the captain took the rosy girl and tie her to the, to the mass, and tie her to the mass. Then he took take the life preserve and jump off on the lock and say goodbye my rosy dear, I go down for your sock. Next morning, very early, about half past two, three, four, the captain scowl when the poor Rosie was corpses on the shore. <laughs> For the wind she blow like hurricane, Bimbi she blow some more, and the scowl was up on Lac Saint Pierre, one a punt from the shore. I'm pretty sure that was supposed to be written in a French esque accent. But it just made it really hard to read. And I am sorry for any of you that don't like um, wet ASMR noises. I need to drink. Because I also just like wet ASMR noises. Oh, this is a short one. Moral. Now all good woods, scow sailor man, take warning by that storm, and go and marry some nice French girl and live on- oh. It's the moral of the previous- oh. Some nice French girl and live on one big farm. The wind can blow like hurricane and suppose she blows some more. You can't get drowned on La St. Pierre so long you stay on shore. William H. Drummond. The Shipwreck. I think we're going into a... into a theme. Upon the poop the captain stands, as starboard as may be, and pipes on deck the... Pardon. And pipes on deck the topsail hands to reef the topsail gallant, strands across the briny sea. Ho! Splice the anchor underway, the captain loudly cried. Ho, lovers, brave, belay, belay, for we must luff for Falmouth Bay before tomorrow's tide. The good ship was a racking y'all, a spare-rigged schooner sloop, athwart the bows, the taffrels, and all, all in grummets gay appeared to fall to deck the mainsail poop. But ere they made the foreland light and deal was left behind, the wind it blew great gales that night and blew the doughty captain tight full three sheets in the wind. Sorry, my brain went three sheets to the wind to me means very, um, inebriated. And right across the tiller head, the horse that ran apace, whereon a traveler hitched and sped along the jib and vanished to heave the trysail brace. What ship could live in such a sea, what vessel bear the shock, 
Ho, starboard port, your helm elite. Ho, reef the main top gallant tree with many a running block. I feel like this guy's just putting every word from, uh, every, like, nautical term he knows into a poem. Now, I am not nautical enough to know necessarily what half of this means. So maybe it makes sense to seafaring peoples. Which is really sad, considering I used to live on an island. And right upon the silly isles, the ship had run aground, when lo, the stalwart Captain Giles mounts up upon the gaff and smiles, and slews the compass round. Saved, saved, with joy the sailors cry, and scandalize the skiff, as taut and hoisted high, and dry they see the ship unstoppered lie upon the secret cliff. And since that day in Falmouth Bay, as herring fishers trawl, the Yonkers hear the boatswain say how Captain Giles that awful day preserved the sinking y'all. E.H. Palmer. A sailor's yarn. As opposed to knitter's yarn. Sorry, that was a bad joke. For those who can see, I pulled out my cardigan that I'm working on. Crochet, actually. I do both. As narrated by the second mate to one of the marines. This is the tale that was told to me by a battered and shattered son of the sea. To me and my messmate Silas Green when I was a guileless young marine. Twas the good ship Yakutus all in the China seas with the wind a lee and the captain free to catch the summer breeze. Twas Captain Porky on the deck to the mate in the mizzen hatch, while the boatswain bold in the forward hole was winding his larboard watch. Oh, how does our good ship head tonight? How heads our gallant craft? Oh, she heads to the east-south-west by north. They just like throwing all the directions in there. And the binnacle lies abaft. Oh, what does the quadrant indicate? And how does the sextant stand? Oh, the sextant's down to the freezing point and the quadrant's lost a hand. Oh, if the quadrant's lost a hand and the sextant falls so low, it's our body and bones to Davy Jones this night are bound to go. Oh, fly aloft to the garboard strake and reef the spanker boom. Bend a stubbing sail on the martingale to give her weather room. Oh, both swing down in the forward hole. What water do you find? Four foot and a half by the royal gaff and rather more behind. Oh, sailors, color your marlin spikes and each belaying pin. Come stir your stumps to spike the pumps or more will be coming in. They stirred their stumps. They spiked their, the pumps. They spliced the mizzen brace. Aloft and aloud they worked, but oh, the water gained the pace. They bored a hole below her line to let the water out, but more and more with awful roar the water ended spout. Then up spoke the cook of our gallant ship, and he was a lubber brave. I've several wives in various ports in my life I'd like to save. Then up spoke the captain of marines who dearly loved his prog. It's awful to die, and it's worse to be dry, and I move we pipes to grog. Okay. I'm a nerd, and I just found out that 
grog was apparently like this terrible mixture of like half water, half ale, uh, because water couldn't, um, uh, they didn't know how to keep water on ships at the time. And a marine captain, uh, was like, yeah, I can't have a ship of, uh, drunk marines. So he made up this terrible concoction of, oh, it was rum. It was half rum, half water. And it tasted disgusting. And I don't remember his first name, but I remember his name was Grog, because that's why it got its name, was because people were so pissed at it that when he wasn't a earshot, they'd be like, oh, look, my half a cup of Grog, half a pint of Grog. Sorry for the tangent, but, you know, name of the game. Oh, then twas the gallant second mate a step them sailor's jaw. Twas the second mate whose hand in, had weight in laying down the law. He took the anchor on his back and leapt into the main. Through foeman's spray he clove his way and sunk and rose again. Though foeman's spray a legal way, the anchor stout he bore. Till safe at last I made it fast and warped the ship ashore. That's an impressive guy. This is the tale that was told to me by the modest and truthful son of the sea, and I envy the life of a second mate, though captains curse him and sailors hate, for he ain't like some of the swabs I've seen as would go and lie to a poor marine. J.J. Raish. Alright, how long is this next one? Alright, we're gonna do one more, and then I'll say my goodbyes for the night. We're almost halfway through this particular book. If, um, if my reading app doesn't lie. The Walloping Window Blind. A capital ship for an ocean trip was the Walloping Window Blind. No gale that blew dismayed her crew or troubled the captain's mind. The man at the wheel was taught to feel contempt for the wildest blow and it often appeared when the weather had cleared that he'd been in his bunk below. The boatswain's mate was very sedate, yet fond of amusement too, and he played hopscotch with the starboard watch while the captain tickled the crew. And the gunner we had was apparently mad, for he sat on the after rail and fired salutes with the captain's boots in the teeth of the booming gale. The captain sat in a com commodore's hat and dined in a royal way, on toasted pigs and pickles and figs and gummery bread each day. But the cook was Dutch and behaved as such, for the food that he gave the crew was a number of tons of hot cross buns chopped up with sugar and glue. And we all felt ill as mariners will on a diet that's cheap and rude, and we shivered and shook as we dipped the cook in a tub of his gluesome food. Yikes. The nautical pride we laid aside and we cast the vessel ashore, on the gullaby isles where the poo-poo smiles and the anagazanders roar. Composed of sand was the favored land and trimmed with cinnamon straws, and pink and blue was the pleasing hue of the tickle toe teaser's claws. I think they were going mad from dehydration or scurvy. And we sat on the edge of a sandy ledge and shot at the whistling bee, and the binnacle bats were waterproof hats as they danced in the sounding sea. On 
rubagub bark from dawn to dark we fed till we all had grown uncommonly shrunk when a Chinese junk came by from the Torby zone. She was stubby and square but we didn't much care and we cheerily put to sea and we left the crew of the junk to chew the bark of the rugabug tree. Charles E. Carroll. Okay. Well, the next one, we start with the rollicking mastodon. But that is where I will leave you all today. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this, please like, subscribe, rate, review, depending on where you're seeing this and what's offered. Um, the more you interact, the more likely it is for other people to find me. Also, share with your friends if you think they'll like my tangents. And I know that, you know, the vote for a nonsense anthology probably seemed out on, you know, left field. But seeing how terrible some of these are, it's not really that weird. Um... I'm can be found on Facebook as face uh, as Facebook as uh, Tangents on Cracked Spines Book Club. Uh, my personal social medias are uh, FrankieCore92 and YouTube and all the podcast places. Tangents on Cracked Spines. Thank you all and have a wonderful day. And hopefully you don't have 